Hello and welcome to the Celtic Down Under Tuesday crew. I'm your host for tonight, Stephen, uh, and I'm very happy to be joined by Gav, Mark and Willie. And welcome back, Mark, after a week off. Um, how are you feeling? Yeah, feeling pretty good, mate. So, yeah, so I do, I work in the mines, so I do like, a week on, week off. So, yeah, so I'm only available every second week. So, try to make the most of my days off. I'm, I'll be fixing my car today. I'm doing a shitbox rally in a couple of weeks. So we've got an old, an old car we're trying to get road loved. Uh, yeah, playing football last night, playing against top of the league. Unfortunately, we lost uh, 3-2. So there's talk of us getting a positive mindset coach in for next week to try and sort us out. <laughs> well, that'll definitely work. <laughs> yeah. For sure. And, uh, and Wally, how are you doing? I'm doing good, yeah. Been uh, up at one in the morning to watch the St. Mirren game. Which left me a bit tired yesterday, but I'm starting to get back to it now. Yeah, that's good. Uh, Gav, how are you getting on over there in Malaysia? Getting on very well. It was an 8pm kickoff here, so that was absolutely perfect. And just another day for you and me in paradise. You know, watching Celtic these days, amazing. I can't remember in all my football history being less emotionally impacted by going 1-0 down. Just didn't even touch the sides. Yeah, yeah, well, we'll, we'll touch on that in a minute. I'm, I'm not sure I, I quite share that sentiment. I was a little bit nervous myself, given the given the previous results at St Mirren. So um, we'll jump straight into that game. So it was St Mirren 1, Celtic 5 um, in, in Paisley. What, what is that stadium called now, Mark? You'll know you're a buddy, aren't you? I can't remember. It changed its name. Uh, I... I don't know. New uh, okay. St. Mon Park, I think. But I think it might be. Yeah, oh, it might have a sponsor now. I'm not sure. But yeah, New St. Mon Park. Because okay, they moved maybe half a kilometre away from Love Street. So into a new. Cleared their debt, built a smaller stadium. It seems to be working for them. Okay, we'll call it New St. Mon Park. That sounds good. Um, so yeah, we'll set some in one Celtic five. Uh, we obviously went a goal down uh, with a penalty kick after uh, Greg Taylor was penalised for handball after a VAR review. Um, struggled, I think it's fair to say we struggled in the first half to get back into the game. Some uh, in down to ten just before the break, uh, with the referee giving a penalty uh, after Kyogo was brought down as the last man. Again, overturned on VAR to a free kick outside the box. Uh, we'll, we'll dive a bit further into that later. So after the break, we bounced right back into the game, took a right hold of it, and, and you know Jota, Johnson, Abada, O'Reilly, and O with, with a late penalty uh, rounded out the scoring for a very comfortable win at the end of the day. Um, so obviously the the sending off probably changed the game. But I had a bit of a look at the possession figures today and the possession figures between the first half and the second half were very similar. So it didn't really make a, an awful lot of difference to the amount of time we had the ball. Uh, but I guess, you know, as the game went on, St Mirren became a little bit more tired. So I, I maybe go to you first, Gav, uh, just to get your overall thoughts in the game and, and what you thought of the performance. Well, I think the first half I was kind of perversely enjoying the fact that we had a game on our hands, you know. They, they did really well. Their, their game plan was very effective. And I didn't think we were terrible in the first half, but they got the lucky break with the penalty, went a goal up. And for the rest of the first half, I thought we were reasonable, but they did everything they could to stifle us. And 
like I say, even though we were one nil down, I was fully confident that over the full two halves we'd win comfortably in the end. But you're never quite sure. But then, as soon as the sending off happened, it was there was no doubt in my mind that we were going to win at a counter. But uh, I mean, great substitution from our manager, taking off a winger that needs space in behind and putting on one better suited to the type of defensive action we were going to face in the second half. So unlike our rivals across Glasgow, we can have faith that our manager will make good substitutions at the time that they're needed. Yeah, I think I think the I think the the substitution has definitely impacted the game with um, certainly Abada uh, being the strongest of them. Um, who definitely had a had an influence on the, on had a hand in pretty much two or three of the goals. Um, so I might talk to you next, Mark, just to get your overall thoughts in the game and what do you think? Yeah, so like the f- first half, it was just kind of we just yeah we, we never started really well. So I wouldn't say they troubled us too much, but they had more control of the game. Uh, we. Yeah, so like the second half, like we, we came into it and made much more of an impact on the game and obviously got our chances. The sending off certainly helped us. The, I don't understand why he done it. Like, he should have just let... I know I know it was a bad touch and he felt responsible, but you just let that go and hope the goalkeeper saves it and it keeps you... Or he scores, it's one each. But you, don't, you know you're going to get sent off with half the game still to play. Do you know what I mean? That's a, that's a challenge you would maybe make in the... 80th minute or or whatever if you're going for a league title or 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 a cup or whatever but yeah so just kind of I thought the substitutions yeah it's the manager makes the right substitutions but also I think it shows you the quality we've got on the bench I've had a came on and he was he was superb again uh, yeah uh, yeah and then before we talk about VAR and all that kind of stuff but yeah second half we came into it uh, there was a bit of nervousness in the first half, especially because Samarna had the last team domestically to beat us. So there was a bit of that as well. You're, you're kind of hoping that Lightning didn't strike twice. But uh, second half, yeah, we, we came into it and we were actually a joy to watch at times. Yeah, I think the, in the first half, um, the delivery from the wide areas was pretty poor. I think uh, both Jota and Abada um, had very poor first halves. In fact, you know, you, you could argue that both of them were very poor games, but Abada, you know, got hooked early. Uh, I think it was half time. Um, but um, I think that was the issue in the first half. We just couldn't get any, you know, the 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 wingers weren't getting the byline. Nobody was really getting in behind St. Mirren. And it was all just crosses from deep that their centre halves were just easily dealing with. So I think that's where the issue was in, in the first half in general. Um, so what about yourself, Willie? What were your, your general thoughts in the game and, and any talking points you've seen out of it? Oh, there was plenty of talking points in the game, that was for sure. But um, in the end, it was a pretty comfortable win. In the second half, we just went out and blew them away. First half, we kind of, I kind of thought we were getting bullied a wee bit by them. There were a bit of roughhouse tactics from them, which the referee seemed to let go way too often. Um, but in the second half, the sending off happened and that was it for them. That was a, the, the meeting of their downfall. Should have been a penalty, in my eyes. The foul sort of carries on into the box. But we'll probably just touch on that later with the VAR subject. And into the second half, uh, you could see 
see that they'd obviously had a rocket put under them in the dressing room and they came out in the second half, a bad on the right and Jota on the left. I think Jota is more dangerous on the left as a player. Personally, I think he prefers to play out there. I think that's his natural position. But um, yeah, we just took the game to them and they just couldn't live with us. They tried to, once they went sort of 2-1 down, they tried to change shape and go a little bit more direct and try and have a go to get back in the game. But within 10 minutes of the substitutions Robinson made, we were 4-1 up, game was over. And then Ole got his penalty at the end. Yeah, like I say, comfortable win in the end. Although I wouldn't have said that at half time. I was kind of like, oh, is this going to be another great, great, great top hoodoo day for us or whatever? But yeah, good win. Yeah, I like, I'd like to give St. Mirren some credit, but but I'm not going to because um, I thought, you know, that their tactics were pretty deplorable. But they were time wasting from about the fifth minute onwards. In fact, as soon as they went all up, they were time-wasting and they were kicking the ball away sometimes at full length of the park and the ref, you know, was compliant, just didn't do anything about it until eventually when McGregor got on his ear about it, um, he eventually showed them a card. But even then, they were stealing like 10, 15 yards at every throw-in, time-wasting at every throw-in, you know, taking forever to take free kicks and I just, you know, to me that's the sort of thing that would get football stopped. Now, I understand sitting there and I'm not playing in the same with the same resources as us. So they'll say, you know, that's what they have to do to stop us. But they ended up getting beat 5-1 anyway. So my question is, would they not have been better coming out and trying to make a game of it? They might end up getting beat 5-1, but, you know, what's the difference, really? And it's so live on the TV, it's live in Sky, it's a poor advert for the Scottish game. And, you know, I just, I've seen I've seen a lot of people over the socials giving St Mirren a bit of credit, but I just can't, I just can't bring myself to. Any thoughts, guys? With the time-wasting thing, Stephen Robinson, the video clip to him at 30 minutes in the game, and you see him, he's got slow it down, slow it down, slow it down. He's like, come on, man, you're 30 minutes into the game and you want to go time-wasting, man. Yeah, you're never going to hold out that length of time, and it's, it's just... No. It just it, it especially really especially the way we knock on the door. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, well, I would give Stephen Robinson a bit of credit, to be honest. No manager has enjoyed as many minutes of success or being ahead of Celtic this season than he has, the Northern Irishman. And, uh, you know, they beat us once, and they gave their all in that first half. And I think despite the scoreline, he ought to take some satisfaction in how his team put up a fight. Underhand tactics or not, you know, you got to do what you got to do. Yeah, fair enough. But I just can't give, you know, Stephen Robinson... Can't give him any credit. Disliked him at Motherwell. Dislike him now. Nothing to do with him being an all Irishman. <laughs> so let's just leave it there. <laughs> um, so yeah, so we'll jump in there. Might jump in the referee now. Now we're talking about him. Um, VAR again involved with the, the the penalty against Greg Taylor. Involved again uh, with the overturn of the Kyogo penalty. Um, and involved again for the for Celtic's penalty that, that when it all had his shirt pulled in the box late on. Um, so, what's your thoughts on the, the VAR influence on the game? Start with you, Mark. Yeah, the, the, I still I, I still need to understand this handball because it just seems like one week they're awarded, the next week they're not. Uh, to me, it was obviously it hit Taylor's hand, but it was a bit of a tough one because. Taylor's hand was actually in that position as the Simon player was touching that ball. So I don't think his hand moved after the ball left the Simon. So, so to me, he's not moved his hand. 
So I, I'm not sure if that's a 100% penalty, but it's a bit frustrating. They have to wait, was it three or four minutes before they go and have a look at VAR? Like the game's passed by. There might have been a goal in that time. What happens if St. Monday Dory they scored and then we're actually giving St. Monday penalty as well? So that's something that needs to be looked up. Yeah, I think like for 90% of my football support in life, that's not a penalty. Um, he's, there's nothing he can do about it. His hand's so close to the ball. Um, it's, it's an involuntary... There's, there's no voluntary reaction towards the ball there. Yeah. But given what has been given as penalties now and what we've seen recently, then yeah, I can see why it was given. My, my issue was, you know, why if the referee had a better view of it than anyone and didn't, didn't give it at the time, and you're right, Mark, the amount of time it's taking to reach these decisions is just appalling. Um, I don't know what they're doing. If they've got an old um, VHS video recorder up there, then they're, they're frantically rewinding it and forwarding it to, 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 yeah. to replay the, 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 the incident. But it, no way it should take that long. So, Stephen, I th- what I believe at the time when I was watching it, I had to wait for the ball to go out of play before the referee could go over and have a look at the incident. So that's why it took yeah, yeah, no, no, so, yeah, yeah, no, the yeah, I get that. But just, you know, even when the ball went out of play, it still took an age to reach a decision. Yeah, yeah. You should only have to yeah. look at that once and say, OK, that's a penalty. And give the penalty and let's go on with it. And I think that's the, the, the source of frustration for a lot of people. Um, so moving on to the, the Kyogo incident, I'll, I'll go to you, Willie. Um, any issues with that getting overturned? I think you said you did. You thought that was a penalty. Aye. It, it, the one that rankles me the most is the fact to the referee didn't go to the monitor. He just went like, oh, it's outside the box. All right, okay, that's, that's free kick. He didn't go to the monitor. If, if it's a clear and obvious error, he's got to go to the monitor and say, like, where have I gone wrong? This is where I've gone wrong, and I'll correct my error this way. But the foul carries on into the box. We 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 sat there a couple of weeks ago when the Scottish Cup was played, and we had to listen to commentators and people in the media talk ad nauseum about how Malik Tillman's foul started outside the box, carried on inside the box, because that way it is an actual penalty. And it was, like, it's the same as this. The foul happens outside the box and carries on into the box, so it's a penalty. Why is one a penalty and the other's a free kick? I don't know. I, I, I honestly can't fathom out sure how you, they've overturned it. I'm sure you, you know? could take a wild guess at that, mate. Oh, <laughs> Andrew Dallas. Well, yeah. I, I, we'll not mess about. I, I'm pretty certain Andrew Dallas is probably the reason, right? Yeah, I'm sure Andrew Dallas it's, is up there in the box with his dad staring over his shoulder. Uh, yeah, uh, so it's, it's, it just doesn't make sense. Like you know what I mean? Yeah. It's 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 clear his hand is still on his shoulder as Kyogo is passing the the white line into the penalty area. So foul is carrying on into the box. It's a penalty. So I've I've been trying I've been reading a few things uh, around the socials about it and I've I've read a few conflicting opinions and, and again it's, it's it comes down to the, the sort of minutiae of the rules really. Um, now some people t- are suggesting that it's where the the defender making the making the foul where he is when the foul finishes and if that's the case he was outside the box when the foul finished but other people are saying it's where the attacker is so it's not clear but I guess. The issue is, was it a clear and obvious error by the ref who gave the penalty? And that's what VAR is supposed to be for. It's supposed to be for correcting clear and obvious errors. And it certainly wasn't a clear and obvious error, given the fact that, you know, no two people can arrive at the same conclusion. Um, so, and, and Chris D there in the comments, his, throat, his foot was on the line, which under the rules is the same as being in the box. 
So, and you, when you're looking at the replay, it's like a frame in the video of difference between being inside and outside the box. So it really depends where the, the VAR operator stops the frame as well. Um, so what do you think, Gav? What's your take on it? Well, I think the mechanics of VAR in this game were a complete mess, as usual. And, you know, the first one, uh, the handball, fair enough, I suppose, in this day and age. The second one, it's just so difficult to see. I mean, you know those two stills that we've probably all seen, the one that sports scene went with, where you can see the defender clearly has a grip of his shirt and Kyogo's foot is short of the line. And they're saying that that's proof that that's where it ended. And then the next still is Kyogo's foot is on the line. But you can't quite see if he's totally let go of the material of his shirt. That's how small the margin is. That's the kind of detail you're looking for. It's it's just, I mean, it's very hard to see. It's not certain in my eyes. I can't come down on either side one way or the other. It's just, I mean, you know, you need to be able to enlarge those photographs, you know, with incredibly clear detail to see whether the contact is still going on, as far as I can see. You know? Yeah, I think like, I, I really, when it comes down to it, I don't really have a problem with either decision, right, being a penalty against Greg Taylor and, and the penalty decision being overturned. I can see why that happened. The question in my mind is, what would have happened if Rangers were playing and not Celtic? And I think we know the answer to that because we've seen it a million times this season. We've seen more blatant handballs been let go by Rangers players. And as, as Willie pointed out there, we, we saw the Marek Tillman incident, which is pretty, almost identical uh, when, when the ref gave the penalty and VAR didn't overturn it. So, um, you know, that's a frustration for me. Um, and, and that's where I think, you know, we, we've got every reason to be to be quite, uh, quite annoyed about it. I think Ange was as well. He was quite prickly about it in the press conference after it. And, you know, he made reference to it. To the, to the VAR decisions, you know, despite the fact he usually doesn't make a big deal about these things. Um, so we, well, listen, I saw, I, saw, I saw a tweet today, and maybe you saw the same one, and I haven't been able to check whether it's completely true or not, but the tweet is this. 32% of Celtic goals conceded in the league this season have been penalties. 0% of Rangers goals conceded in the league this season have been penalties. Can that be? Is that accurate? I mean, that's astounding if it's true. Well, they haven't. The Rangers haven't been awarded a league penalty against them this season. You've got to go back to well, last year sometime yeah. for a league penalty. And that, I mean, that's it's an absurd statistic, really, when you think about it. Mm. Uh, and it does make our, our league look ridiculous, uh, especially when you consider that, you know, that they're not the best team in the country. They don't score the most goals and they're not in the box as much as us. So, but they get all these way more penalties than us, uh, you know, and, and you know, and, and the the opposing team just doesn't get a penalty against Rangers. It's as simple as that. Um, so, whether it's a case, but I do, I don't really like talking about conspiracies and all that stuff because you know it's it, it, you go down a rabbit hole there that you, that you can go down for years. Um, but what do you think, Mark? What do you think we should be doing about this? And is it something we just have to, you know, take on the chin as, as Tony Mowbray might once have said? It's yeah, it's it's a tough one, and I I don't like the conspiracy route, but there's kind of there is uh, yeah, what Gav says as well. I think it's 420 days since Rangers last received a penalty, and at that time they put a letter, letter and a complaint. So it's interesting to know how long that letter of complaint is valid for. 
for them not to receive another penalty because it's uh, it's kind of but yeah. So the decisions yesterday that went against us, we've seen go for Rangers. So, but yeah, I, I, yeah. I, what, what do we what, what do we do? Do we just sit down and have a big like have have all the evidence here and go through everything? It's 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 it is a really tough one, but. Uh, but yeah, just just on that one yesterday, uh, sorry, earlier on, with the VAR ref overturning that penalty decision, you'd expect that the referee on the part would at least had the opportunity to go and double check. With him just accepting what the VAR ref said, I'd be expecting if you made a big, big decision, like a penalty, and it's been overruled, and it's but it's marginal, you should at least go and have the monitor because you you to me he should have control of the game. And it should be his decision at the end. But yeah, anyway, so, but yeah, whether there's a conspiracy, I'm not sure, but there is a lot of, put it this way, Rangers have been very, very lucky for the last 400 days when it comes to penalties. And we'll see how long the luck, luck, luck runs for. Did you see the Sky Sports in England? Them yeah, talking watched, about yeah. it with Dermot yeah, Gallagher? Yeah, yeah, ask the ref, they're yeah. asking the ref section. There was four people in that section, and they were all bemused. At the they looked at they weren't looking at the Celtic game. They were looking at the Rangers Kilmarnock game, uh, yeah. and they were looking at the VAR decision that, that one gave Rangers a penalty and two refused to give Kilmarnock a penalty. And you know the thing about that is that the Kilmarnock incident was really late in the game. The, the game was probably gone for Kilmarnock already, and if they were going to give a penalty against Rangers to sort of even up the stats a bit, that was the time to do it. Do you know what I mean? Because there was there was nothing. Yeah. Commander weren't going to get back in the game. The points were safe, but they still didn't. And you have to ask yourself the question: Are they ever going to concede a penalty? Yeah, the people in the studio just couldn't explain it, could they? They said it was no. bizarre. That guy Stephen Warnock, former Liverpool and Blackburn Rovers, you could see his face was just like, "What the heck's no. going on up there?" The last time, the last time a game was officiated properly in Scotland, our referees were on strike, and that's a fact. <laughs> we, we, you look at it, you, like last Saturday in the cup final, you had your biannual good refereeing performance from Nick Walsh, and we're due another one sometime between now and the end of the season, which I wouldn't hold out hope on, like, but it's bad. Like it is the worst I've seen it in my lifetime, without doubt. Do you know? I think. Do you know what I think the difference was in the cup final? Uh, in the run-up to that game, there was a couple of people called it out. There was a couple of people who were prominent in the media. One was Neil Lennon, who made some kind of, whether you like Neil Lennon or not, he, he came out in the media and said he would, he would put money on a red card for a Celtic player and a penalty to Rangers. Right? So that's how Rangers do it all the time. They have got their place men in the media who, who continue to drive agendas. And um, that's what we need as well. We need guys like Neil Lennon and Chris Sutton and our own placement in the media keep flagging this keep make sure it's out there make sure people know that Rangers haven't conceded a league penalty all year long um, and it's a fact that and you can get into referees heads that way and I'm sure that was in Nick Walsh's mind when he refereed the cup final he knew that if he you know the, the, the eyes of the world were on him and if he gave Rangers anything as it happened there was nothing really debatable in the game but um, you know I think it, it does help uh, where you've got guy, your, your own guys in the media pushing the line. I think the other thing you've got to look at is a hierarchy of control. I mean, 
who who is reviewing these performances? Who's turning around and saying, "Oh, that was a good performance there this weekend." I great stuff. Keep it up because nine times out of ten, it's going to be a bad performance for the referee. Literally mistakes left, right, and center. So it's it's it, pretty it used, right. It used to be Kenny Clark that used to do a bit of that, and he was kind of. But I don't know if it still is, but if you Kenny Clark's got. A, Infamous after dinner speech where they gave John Dimmer gave John Hartson a stonewall penalty at Ebrooks because of a decision that was overturned the season before. So that shows you the integrity of of him, you know. So, but yeah, I don't know who it is now. I don't know if it still is, but that's who you've got in the background at the SFA's yeah. refereeing committee, you know. So, yeah. But it's like sorry. It's like any any walk of life. If you don't have a proper chain of command with the right information flowing down. It's not going to right. I, I'm an electrician. If my boss doesn't give me the right drawings and the right set of schematics, I'm not going to be able to give the client what they want. And it's the same with Scottish referees. The people above them are just letting this go. If they don't give them like proper peer reviews and say, look, no, nah, this isn't good enough, or say to them, look, this is, you're making mistakes here, there, and everywhere. You've got to nip this in the bud. They're just going to carry on. It's just like status quo, isn't it? That's just Go out there, right, here's a thousand pounds. Go out there, referee again. If you make a mistake, you make a mistake, just let it go. With, we just yeah. bury our head in the sand and let it go. In a couple of weeks, it'll all blow over and somebody else will take centre stage. Right? With, I've only been to a couple of NRL games, uh, rugby league over here, but the refs are all mic'd up. And when it comes to VAR, they, they talk to each other, but it comes over the speakers so everyone can see how they make that decision and what the decision process is. And I think that would probably be something that would help with a bit more transparency at that moment in time. What I would love to see... Sorry, go on. What I would love to see is somebody in the Scottish media, most likely, you know, independent, like PLZ Soccer or someone like that, having referees on to peer review refereeing performances. Somebody had the balls to do that and they could impartially some English fella or something could come up and just give an impartial take on what's going yeah. on with these VAR decisions and yeah. you know get it out there week in week out yeah I think if we Even, if we make up if we make up the refs we might end up uh, hearing more than we really want to to be honest with you <laughs> <laughs> can yeah. can we make can we find we're just crossing uh, we're crossing live to the va- we're crossing live to the VAR the VAR bunker now and there'll be a flute music in the background. Oh, that's that's right. Yeah. That's <laughs> what I would be concerned I, about. Yeah. I, another suggestion might be to get maybe some of these retired English Premiership referees come up and look at VAR. So they're the they're the guys that are in the control room. I think that might help as well. because uh, a lot of these VAR refs, well, I know it was uh, Dallas at the weekend, but some of these VAR refs I've never heard of, they've actually never officiated a top league game on the pitch and then they're expected to be the, be the decision maker at VAR. Do you know what I mean? So I think we need to get guys that have got the experience on the park as well as uh, sitting there making decisions in a room. So just go back to something you said earlier, Mark. The guy in charge of referees is a guy called Crawford Allen. Um, now you'll remember him if, if you think back to, I think it was last year, when uh, Kyogo scored a goal at Celtic Park against Hearts, which turned, looked uh, on the replay to be maybe a, a millimetre or two offside. Um, and Crawford Allen took it upon himself 
to call into a radio station from his holidays um, to tell everyone that the, the referee had got that one wrong and it should have been offside. Never been seen or heard of since. Uh, but he thought that was the correct moment to inject himself into the conversation. When Kyogo, it was a, the, the most marginal call. You could never have called it with the naked eye. Uh, there was no VAR at the time. So the linesman let it go and it was a goal. Um, and that was that was Crawford. So that's Crawford Allen for you. That's the guy who's responsible now for um, for for holding the refs to account. And you know you're not going to get anywhere with guys like that in charge. So I think there needs to be a root and branch clear out of the refereeing community in Scotland. Um, and if you've ever, I don't know if you've ever had a chance to read a book by a guy called Paul Larkin. Um, it's called Anyone But Celtic, uh, and he writes. He goes into great detail about how the refereeing system in Scotland works. Uh, and it's predominantly dominated by ref, by the, the referees associations in Lanarkshire and Ayrshire. And that, that if you and if you look at the refs and where they're coming from, it's always either Lanarkshire or Ayrshire. And these are just closed shops, and they're a law unto themselves, and they've got zero accountability. Uh, and that's the issue. And it's interesting you, you bring up the NRL refs, Mark. Um, I, I used to work down in uh, the Olympic Park in Sydney, where the refs are based. And uh, I seen I used to watch them training, and they train every day like full time sportsmen. And what they do is they they do like exercise drills until they're you know puffed out, and then they're asked to make decisions while they're under physical stress. And that's how they do it. And that's how you, you produce a professional level. Don't get me wrong; they, they don't get it right all the time. Uh, but at least when they do get it wrong, there's accountability as well. If they make a mistake, they get dropped down a level for the next week. Um, and that's. We need to be heading towards that sort of system in Scotland because the, the, the current systems are shambles. All right, so I'll, I might just read out some of the comments that are coming in uh, about this. Um, Shane, Shane Beaton says, uh, we've seen here in Oswell the ref has to go to the monitor to decide whether it was a penalty or a free kick. So I was surprised the ref didn't go to the screen for the Kyogo penalty overturn which is a good point. He just took whatever Andrew Dallas says as gospel, where he should probably have checked it himself. Um, Stephen says he should have, but Andrew Dallas was apparently doing the VAR from our Orange Lodge. Also, it was tweeted by the, I'd like, by the St Mirren chairman. I saw that today. St Mirren chairman getting himself in a bit of trouble. He'll be cancelled by the by the Ibrox holds. Uh, Peter Calero, what about the corner Goldson two-handed save in the penalty area against Celtic Ibrox? Yeah, we remember that one. We'll never forget. Uh, Donny Boy 67 says, we'll be required to shortly to start a goal down in games to give the opposition a foot in the game. Interesting. He also goes on to say, dumb officials acting dumber than normal in our games. It's not even hidden. That's a worrying thing. Um, so there's a few more a few more comments here about the handball, but we won't... Um, we won't um, I certainly won't re read out uh, Peter Stevenson's comment, which is full of expletives. <laughs> So um, yeah, we'll get this. We'll get the show banned if we need that one out. But thanks, Peter. <laughs> For what it's worth, I do agree with you. I do too, actually. <laughs> so um, yeah. So just before we move off the game, um, the thing about the grey away kit, load of old nonsense. Eh? Tell me, I'm wrong, <coughs> Gav. Ah, nothing in it. I don't have anything to say on it, really. Mm -hmm. It's just a top. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I, I genuinely don't understand why they made it, make it, made us wear it. With you know, we could have worn a home kit, sure. and it was, it was, it would have been easily distinguishable from St. Mirren's, But there you go. But Mark, any thoughts on the grey away kit? Yeah, well, the grey away kit, 
uh, yeah, it was, it was a bit strange how we were forced to wear that. I think there was other options there. Uh, obviously, the last time we wore it, we got beat. But I remember a Man United game in the 90s, 1996 or whatever. They were playing Southampton away. And they were wearing a grey away strip for the first game, for the first time. And at half time, they changed it to a blue and white one. And the thought was that the players couldn't make each other out. They could beat that game. And I think they maybe got a 10 grand fine. So maybe maybe there's something in it. But I don't I don't know. It wasn't as if... So that's maybe why the mindset was there. Something that's happened before. But it wasn't as if we were making bad passes or people were missing people or whatever, I think. But, so, so yeah. I, I think it was just a, bit, a little bit of superstition. But, yeah, I'd be happy for us to wear that jersey again. And what about you, Willie? Will you be adding that one to your collection? I'm not a fan of that kit, I'll be honest with you. It's not, um, it's pretty bland and unimaginative, if I'm honest. Like, um, I'm not a fan, no. If they never wear it again, I wouldn't be too bothered. Like, I can't understand how like Adidas hasn't weighed it up and says, right, who's in the league? What colour of kits are going to clash here? Like, You know what I mean? They're going to have to, have, oh, there's Hibs who are green and white and playing yellow sometime in reserve. What kit are we going to have? To make sure there's no colour clash in the third kit, the third kit will come out accordingly that suits the sort of styles. You know, I just don't understand how it's come to that. Like, yeah, I think you're right. I think a bit of forward planning wouldn't go amiss by Adidas. Yeah. I mean, but they bring out enough kits as it is. You know, you think they get uh, one that doesn't clash with anyone else in the league. Yeah. Um. So yeah, Gary eighty eight in the comments says it's a shambles of a kit. Uh, Shane likes it. It's a great kit. Never had a problem with it. And uh, Michael says the, the change of kit was insisted upon if there could be a clash in strips. Um, and it says a lot about the ref's eyesight, which we've, <laughs> we can all agree with, I think, after having talked about it at length. Um, yeah. So, one more, just one more thing about the game. Leela Bada made a big difference off the bench, um, a goal, two assists. Um, there was a report during the week that he's refused a new contra- a contract extension. Uh, I think he's still got two years after this season left in his contract. So um, should we be looking to um, to cash in on Abada in the summer? Or um, will we be hanging on to him for now? What do you think, Mark? Right now, I'd keep him at, at the moment. Uh, he's maybe not agreed to deal, but that's that's negotiations between agents and stuff like that. It, might, it, it still might be resolved. I don't think he doesn't enjoy playing with Celtic. Uh, it probably is just a little bit of money. Uh, but yeah, I'd keep him. Uh, his goals, what he contributes, especially when he's come off the bench. Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd keep him just now. I'd, I'd, we're not in a rush. We don't need to sell any players. We've got enough money. So we don't need to, but it's, it's that kind of fine line between getting decent money for him, like we did for Frimpong, uh, or keep a hold of him and hopefully he he signs that new deal. Uh, but yeah, at the moment, I would keep him, probably keep him for most of next season. If he still doesn't want to sign a contract, I think at the end of next season, we'll get decent coin for him still. Uh, and then take it from there. But I would, I'd keep him just now. He's contributing too much uh, for us just to cash in uh, at the moment. Yeah, look, I suppose it depends how much you're going to get from him um, at the end of the day and what his value is. You know, Every player will have their value to Celtic. Um but I guess, you know, if we get to the summer, is this 
and I'll put this one to you, Gav, is this the sort of thing that Angie's talking about when he says we need to be more agile in the transfer market? Is it guys like Abada who we need to sell at the at the top of their value? Because, you know, as he gets towards the end of his contract, then, you know, his value will decline. What do you reckon? Certainly, I think that's what Ange means generally. I don't know if it would specifically apply it to Abada. As far as I'm aware, his contract expires on the 31st of May, 2026. Yeah, so that, we could that's get, right. So. so we could get like two more full seasons out of him and he's still got a year left. Uh, you know, we could play him for another 12 to 18 months as long as his heart's in it and his head's in the right place and then still sell him. So, you know, no player has to commit to us forever. Like how many of our current heroes, to your point, will be gone 18 months from now? You know, probably a fair few. So I think we can relax about Abada's contract. And I've seen other people saying that, you know, there's been nothing official on this. This is maybe just a bit of mischief making, as we've come to expect. So well, it, could be his agent, it. it could be his agent trying to bump up his value a bit to get him a few extra pounds. Um, so, well, Willie, do you reckon we should stick with Abada? I think so, yeah. I think um, next year's Asian Cup is going to kind of hit our squad a little bit in January, late January, into February. And with Abada, he plays out wide. He likes to. He's very direct in the style of play he has. He, he might not get to the byline. He might cut in and come in. And you know he likes a shot. And for me, you could he could be the the guy that will transition up front once Kyogo goes off to play for Japan, and all will be out there with South Korea. So we're going to need a striker. Whether we go and get somebody temporarily out in there on the market in January and just say, look, we'll give you six months, like a, a veteran striker or whatever. But Abada's there, Haksabanovich is there. So for me, I wouldn't be looking to sell him at all. Just so, before we I, leave Abada. Have you noticed his celebration? What he does to the fans with his yeah, fingers? Yeah. You know, is that, is, is he that S? Like, is no, it's not S. It's it's that. That's his name. Real Yeah. Yeah. I, I thought that was going to be a joke, Gav. I was waiting for a punchline too. Right? I was waiting on a punchline. Uh, I was, I mean, no, I'm just, I'm just here to inform rather than entertain, Steve. Uh, yeah, for sure. That's for sure. Yeah, but you did promise us a joke tonight, so we're we're, we're waiting with um, with anticipation. Anticipation. Excuse me, when I fix my false teeth. All right. Uh, so we'll draw a line under that and move on to the next thing we want to talk about in the game. And this is a topic that um, we wanted to do last week, but ran out of time. Uh, because of old Gav's jokes it was telling. Um, <laughs> we're, we're going to do a section called How Good Was when we, we look back at players from the past. And um, the one player that we wanted to, we all mentioned has been one of our favourite players growing up was, was Paul McStay, uh, the maestro. So we're going, to, we're going to talk a bit about Paul uh, and what our recollections are of him. So I'll just run through a bit of a, a bio of Paul McStay. Born in uh, 1964 in Hamilton. Um, raised in the sectarian cesspit of Lark Hall, probably the only good thing that's ever came out of Lark Hall. Um, he was born into Celtic royalty, and uh, two of his great uncles, uh, Jimmy and Willie, both captained Celtic in the in the nineteen twenties. Uh, played with Celtic Boys Club, signed for Celtic in nineteen eighty one, made his debut in nineteen eighty two in a four 0 win over Queen of the South in the Scottish Cup. 
made his league debut shortly after against Aberdeen at Petordi and scored in a 3-1 win. Went on to play 678 games for Celtic with 72 goals and was capped 76 times for Scotland and scored nine times. Um, a lot is made of the, the trophy haul that Paul got and how he should have won more trophies, but he did, he did win three league championships, four Scottish Cups and one League Cup. Um, which is not too bad when you consider, um, you know, some people came through Celtic in the 90s and never won a thing. Um, so he, he left with a few medals, um, albeit most of them were won at the, in the early part of his career when he was just young. A um, couple of notable things about Paul, put his brother Willie and his, uh, his older brother Willie and his younger brother Raymond both played with Celtic at the same time. Uh, he actually played with and scored with Willie next day in an old firm game. Um, at Parkhead, I remember that game well. It was a 3-0 win. Um, and I think my personal feelings are in the, the centenary season, 1987-88, were, were his best for the club. Um, and I have great memories of Paul that season. I think he was absolutely a peak of his game. And when he was at the peak of his game, in my view, he was one of the best midfielders in Europe. Um, and, and that's what that's that's the esteem I hold Paul in. So I might go to you, Mark, uh, to talk a bit about Paul McStay and, and how you, what your favourite memories are. Yeah, so for me, Paul McStay was probably like, everyone my age, our first Celtic hero was Paul McStay. Paul McStay was just made captain. That's when I start remembering football. I went to games before then, but Paul McStay was a captain. Mr Celtic, Celtic family, but he was also called the maestro because he kind of conducted the midfield. Uh, his vision, his, his passing, he was good for a goal. It was, yeah. He, he, earlier on in his career, he won a few trophies. It was unlucky that it, later on that he'd only won, I think he was captain for five years before he won the Scottish Cup. Uh, but yeah, he was he was superb. He was, at points in the early 90s, he was far too good to be playing for Celtic. But he stopped with us because it was his club. And he could, he could have had the opportunities to go elsewhere. Look, John Collins played beside him. John Collins went on to play for Monaco. There's no reason why Paul McStay could have went to a top team in England or Europe, but he stuck by us. And that's probably, yeah, so probably the, it's not as great as game, playing-wise, because it was a very, very scrappy and nervous great game. But for me, I'll always remember that Scottish Cup final in 1995. Uh, Pierre Van Houdon scored eight minutes in, or when it, it was early on in, against Airdrie. Uh, that that header and it was a it was a really really scrappy game. I think part down to everyone being so nervous because we'd lost to Rafe Rollers the year before. But at the end of the game, uh, I remember everyone was just singing Paul McStay. It was like we'd won the league and then straight away it was just the whole whole stadium, the whole Celtic end at Hamden were singing Paul McStay. And that was definitely for me bit growing up an absolute Celtic hero. Uh, and yeah, and he's he's actually in Australia now, and anyone that's bumped into him, I've heard it's such a such a humble man, such a modest man. But yeah, just just for me, it was my first Celtic hero, definitely. And that was an awful game, the nineteen ninety five cup it, final. Oh, I remember it yeah. well. I mean, it was so bad. Um, I actually I have to admit, I lingered too long in the pub that day and missed the goal. Right, yeah. <laughs> so you could. I was yeah. walking up the stairs at Hamden. Just to, to just about got to the top and the goal went in, and everyone went mad. Yeah. I thought, okay, we missed the goal. We'll, we'll see the rest of the goals, and the rest of the game was just absolutely Nothing terrible. But 
a very emotional game. So it was Tommy Burns' only trophy as manager as well. So there was a lot of emotion tied up in that game. I remember there was a few players in tears at the end of it. Peter Grant was in a, uh, Peter Grant. a had a great game. Peter Grant had probably his best game in a Celtic jersey right. as well with a I knee think... injury. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's he probably one really enjoyed that game, mate. Mm. Yeah. So yeah. what about yourself, Willie? Memories of Paul. Memories of the maestro. I actually put in my notes the exact same game. It wasn't a great so did I. Not a, not not a great <laughs> game, but it was it was the aftermath of it all. Watching him, it's what and Tommy Burns and Peter Grant hugging and crying, and just the relief that the, the six year drought was over, the pain at the the the, the league cup final at, at Ibrox against Rafe Rovers. Just watching him step up to take that penalty, my heart broke that day. Like you know, what I mean, he's. Paul McStay is your hero and he missed the, the deciding penalty. Just, just to see the relief of just the weight of the world lifted off his shoulders to get a, a trophy as a captain. Aye. Just a yeah, class no, player. No. I've, what I've got on my notes here, he was just he was the complete midfielder, not frightened to drive at the players, composing the ball, always around the outside of the box and ready to pounce on shots and without raking left foot goals. He always seemed to score when he did get one. So... Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing that. to me that uh, yeah. everybody or the three of us picked that very game because you know it wasn't Paul McStay's best game far from it but that was the moment where him having given so much to Celtic for so long and through those difficult years you know he finally got his reward in terms of silverware and the League Cup final that Willie mentions six months earlier where he missed the sudden death penalty Apparently he took that really, really badly. And at the next game at Easter Road, the fans held up a sign saying, you'll never walk alone, Paul. And then for him to then lift that trophy six months later, it was just such a relief for everyone. and You know, the whole team, but him especially. It was wonderful moments. Yeah, and that, that League Cup final against Free Throwers, um, I remember being at that game and it, and it was, it was heartbreaking. Um, and it summed up the period at the time. Paul McStay was such a good player, and, but he was surrounded by inferior players. Um, that, that game should never have got to a penalty shootout. Uh, Gordon Marshall, yeah. who was a goalkeeper at the time, sold the jerseys. Um, I think Charlie Nicholas was playing at the time, the, the sort of the second version of Charlie Nicholas at Celtic, who was just right. hopeless. Missed a sitter. Um, you know, the, the, the team was full of, you know, substandard players. They just weren't up to Paul's standard. And it was really, really heartbreaking to watch him carry the can for that. And he did, you're right. Um, the, at the next game at Easter Road, I was at that game as well. The, the fans did have that banner up. But the next time we went to Ibrox, the, the Rangers fans had a banner saying, you'll never lift a trophy, Paul McStay. Um, so that that was nice again for us, for him then to go and lift a trophy the same season. Um, so it would have been it would have been terrible if he'd finished his time as the captain without a trophy at all. Uh, but you know he was he was such a good player who who carried us through that almost entire era between himself and John Collins, who was a, another excellent player. Um, but my, my my game, my favourite game was the the New Year fixture um, in nineteen eighty eight in the centenary year. Uh, we were talking about that off air, and Paul makes, we beat Rangers two 0 just at the turn of the year. And um, it set us on the way to winning the winning the league championship in that very important year for the club. And Paul McStay was just superb in that game. He absolutely ran the show. He had them all in strengths. Uh, and one in particular through ball he played for uh, Chris Morris, 
who then squared it for, for McAvaney to score um, was just incredible. One of the best passes I've ever seen um, at a game of football. So if you haven't had a chance to watch that, go and have a look at it on YouTube. Um, an excellent midfield performance and, and you know, just showed him up at the time to be to be the best the best midfielder uh, around at that time. So that, that, that that's my favourite memory of Paul. Um, did any of you guys remember that game? I don't remember it, but I watched it. You recommended it, so I watched it. I actually watched it tonight. It was a half-hour highlights reel on, on YouTube, and it was well worth a watch, right? Definitely. Uh, yeah, yeah I'd, I'd have been too young. I'd have been, I'd have been free then. Uh, but I used to have Celtic videos that used to show you all the Celtic Rangers games and stuff like that, you know, like all the highlights. He scored, was that? That wasn't the game. It been the season before he scored the left football at Ibrooks. Was that the season? Yeah, that was also yeah, in the head, yeah. That was that was in the yeah. same season, but that was at Ibrooks. Mm-hmm. That was in a game yeah. where um, he scored the opening goal. Then a guy called Jan Bartram equalised for Rangers. Um, yeah. A guy who uh, gained notoriety later by telling everyone that Rangers were a bunch of thugs <laughs> before he left the club. So that was that was his claim to fame. And then um, we, we scored the winner that day with a an Anton Rogan header, which went in off Andy Walker's chest. Um, so that, that that was a good day as well. But yeah, great goal. Left foot volley, yeah. absolutely brilliant. Um, I, I can still remember that one hitting the net. Great feeling. Yeah, what I love about that goal was that it's kind of Paul McStay's story in a nutshell, isn't it? A moment of elegant brilliance compared to everybody else. I mean, the ball was bouncing around like crazy in the box and the pitch was pretty cut up and it was an ugly physical battle in the Rangers box and then the ball breaks to him and he strikes it so crisply and, and beautifully and you know the commentator's like and there's Paul McStay as the ball yeah, fired a, past Chris it's Woods a celebra- it's a celebration as well uh, he runs away with his yeah, two yeah, hands yeah, up yeah. it's one of the iconic Celtic photos as well yeah. there's a few of them uh, McGarvey in the uh, Scottish Cup final when he's jumping up in the air there's, there's a few photos about that are just absolutely iconic to Celtic players, you know, and when he was running away with his two hands up in the air, Paul McStay that day, just the elation of, of managing to score, you know, it's it's pretty special, you know, and it, yeah. Yeah, a very special player. Um, left the club in 1997, had an ankle injury towards the end of his career, which he never really shook um, and, and gave it away after that. So definitely a guy who who fits the fits the label legend, Celtic legend. Yeah. Uh, I have a question for you, Stephen. Uh, if Ange was to have, if Ange was to have taken over the Celtic team with Paul McStay in it, what would he have made of him, and how would you compare him to current players in the team? How would you describe him? Well, I, you know, I, I love I love the current team. I love Ange's team. I love the way we play the game. But to be honest with you, I don't think there's anyone in the team that could hold a torch to Paul McStay at his best. If you're talking about the 1987 Paul McStay, 1987-88, then the closest to, to it would probably be Rio Hitati. Um, he's probably the only one with the poise uh, and the ability to spot a pass that Paul McStay has. But I still, I, I still couldn't say he's, he's at that level. You know, I, you know, I think Paul McStay would still stand head and shoulders above anybody in our team at the moment. You know, a, a great team though we have now. But that's that. That maybe maybe just shows you how high I hold him. Um, 
But you look at Moy, Atate, and McGregor, like he's a combination of all three. He's got all the best traits of all three of them mm. in him yeah. in him himself. Yeah. How much do you reckon he'd be worth in the market today? Paul McStay. Ah, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to say, you know, and you name he, I mean at, at the height of his at the height of his career. I mean he was there was talk he was going to leave Celtic and at the end of one season in the early nineties, he did throw his throw his boots into the jungle in the last on the last game. Um, and everybody just assumed he was leaving, but he didn't. He stayed, and you know the, the sort of rumor at the time was there was nobody had came in for him, or, or nobody that he thought was a good offer had come in for him. So, um, so yeah, but we're all well, absolutely delighted that he did stay, even though it could have probably enhanced his reputation by moving to Europe. Um, but I think mm-hmm. it'd be, it'd, it'd certainly a move for as much as the likes of Kieran Tierney moves. You'd be talking about twenty million plus anyway, for sure. Yeah, I've got that sort of twenty-five to thirty million mark down there written down. Yeah. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. it'd be big, big money so, yeah. for us, you know. So yeah, Paul McStay. So we'll probably make, make that a bit of a regular section on our podcast. We'll talk about other players. If you have any, if you've got any suggestions, then you can let us know in the comments or, or reach out after the podcast finishes. And um, so we'll we'll move on from there. So our next section is something we did last week as well. Um, but an education piece for all of us uh, when we're asking questions about Celtic that you might not know or you may know, uh, depending on how um, how steeped you are in the history of the club. So we, we hope uh, we certainly all learned something from this last week, uh, and I hope all the viewers and listeners did too. So the first question um, we're going to ask tonight, and I'm going to get Gav to answer this one, is why Celtic nickname is the boys with an H? Okay, well, there are a couple of elements to this. Mostly the insertion of an H after the B is to mimic what's often seen in the Irish language. BH appears in Irish. If you think about the female name, Siobhan, it has a BH, S-I-O-B-H-A-N. But that makes like the V sound, Siobhan. Siobhan, your knickers, your dad's coming. So it go- my sister's called Siobhan, just oh, so you know, no. Gav. Oh no! There you go. Just watch what you're saying, bud. I'm breaking up here. I'm breaking up. Ban from YouTube. Sorry, Jared. Uh, I'm glad this is a virtual meeting, Mark. That's theory. Uh, but uh, oh, good man. Like it, anyway. It goes way back. Apparently, it was first used in the 1800s in New York as an identifier of Irishness to put the heats. That was the first time the boys was ever seen like that. And then in the early 1900s, there's a famous postcard showing the, the words, the bold boys, or maybe the bowl boys, in reference to Celtic. And in fact, other football clubs in Scotland with Irish roots used the term also in the past, but now it's exclusively Celtic. The other element, some say, is that it mimics the sound, but it isn't the sound from the Irish because BH makes the V sound, like you said. Uh, so it's not the way that Irish people say the word boys, as far as I can see. I see that written sometimes, you know, the boys or something. But personally, I think it just looks more Irish. So these days, words like boys, B-H-O-Y-S, and now also girls, G-H-I-R-L-S, identifies them as specifically Celtics, boys and girls. Sorry, Mark. All good, mate. That's a, that's a very comprehensive answer there, Gav. So, you know, well done. So I think um, I didn't know that. 
to be honest with you, that's something that, that I've learned. I actually had a read at that today myself. So, um, so now, yeah, that's very interesting. So the next um, the next question we're going to ask, and then Mark's going to pick this one up, is to why do Celtic have a four-leaf clover in the crest rather than a shamrock? So, yeah, good question. And it's something that I didn't know as well, so I had to do a bit of research today. Uh, well, can I talk a little bit about the Celtic jersey as well as when we started using that specific badge? Can it kind of... It kind of intermingles a little bit. So the first the first Celtic crest was actually a, a Celtic cross, which if you tuned in last week is with a not with a soft C, it's with a hard C, Gav. So yeah, so Celtic Cross was a white jersey, green collar, red badge with a Celtic cross. So that we had that for a season and then we'd done away with a badge on our jersey. Uh, so we actually went to a white jersey. Uh, sorry, we went to vertical stripes, green and white. So we decided to go green and white. We used that until about 19, 1904 when we started using hoops. We never actually used a badge until on our jerseys then, until 1955. So if you remember that famous kind of 19 away jersey from 55 to 64, it was near enough the same as the, the original jersey. It was actually the away jersey, but it had the shamrock on it. So, so we had we had that between fifty five and sixty four, and it wasn't until nineteen seventy six that we had a badge on our jersey for the first time. Does anyone know what badge it was? Just as an interesting question, can you guess? In nineteen seventy six. Nineteen seventy six, we had a badge on our jersey, for the, on our home jersey for the first time. No, don't know that it's one, mate. It's a, it's a tricky one. It's actually an umbro badge. So we had an umbro badge as the, the shop manufacturer for the first year. Then in 1977, we've seen the badge that we've basically, we've all got you know, on our jerseys just now, but it was in the centre and it was kind of like, that That jersey reminds me of uh, Johnny Doyle. Now like that Johnny Doyle top, like in 1977. So, so, so the four-wheelers clover's been used as our badge ever since. So, but the earliest I could find was in 1908. The four-wheelers clover badge was created by the club and presented to the players for winning a domestic quadruple. So the quadruple back then was the league, mm-hmm. the Scottish Cup, the Charity Cup, and the Glasgow Cup. And it, there's a possible theory that if we only won a treble that year, we might have continued using the shamrock. Uh, it was a couple of decades until we used, the club actually adopted that as a proper crest. Uh, the first official usage of the clover looks to be in the front of the 1935-36 season, and it was a season t- ticket book, and it was actually pretty similar to what we've got on our jerseys at the moment. They haven't actually changed uh, the badge too much. They've changed the wording of it, because we were a, a private company, so it used to be, I don't know if you remember, Celtic Football and Athletic uh, Company Limited. And then we went uh, we went public and we changed the wording. Uh, and, I, and I see you, Stephen's got the, the crest. Is that the 125-year jersey yes, you've is. got on? This is so, one, yeah, so this now and again, we'd maybe have something around the size. Obviously, we got the star up there. We never introduced the star until it, I can't remember the year. Uh, but that obviously signif- uh, signifies winning the European Cup 
Uh, yeah, so that's basically what I've got uh, for that. So we started using it officially in 1935, and then you see it start coming in with uh, official merchandise, uh, official documentation around about 1938 onwards. But we kind of used we used the shamrock as well as uh, as well as the clover for. Uh, until 1977, when we actually adopted it as the recognised badge for Celtic. Yeah, mate, well done. That was a very comprehensive, uh, a comprehensive description of the badge and everything. I do remember the 1977 strip that you're talking about, and I still think I would love someday any kit manufacturer to do a remake of that in a sort of modern context. Um, I remember Andy Lynch scoring a penalty. Uh, that one is the Scottish Cup against Rangers, um, and that was uh, the iconic strip. You're right, Johnny Doyle um, was around at that time as well. So, yeah, great, a great strip. So, thanks for that, Mark. Um, so, we're moving on to our next question. Uh, and Willie's going to tell us why Celtic performed the huddle and where do, does it come from? So, the huddle originated in the 1995-96 pre-season tour of Germany where we lost 2-0 away to Kickers Emden. And it was Tony Mowbray who started it. And a lot of people seem to think it's because of the troubles that his wife went through. His wife actually passed away. I think it was Bernadette was her name. But in his own words, I'll read out, I don't like to put a patent on it, but I take a great sense of pride in it. It has nothing to do with my wife, as I've been wrongly reported. It came out of adversity. Celtic players needed to show real unity and togetherness. We needed to show the supporters we cared. That was kind of through the times when Rangers were on their march to the nine in a row. We'd just come off the back of winning the Scottish Cup after we discussed earlier, after a six-year drought. So, yeah, it was just, it was born out of just adversity. So, And he's, he also finishes by saying it's, he's actually gone on to say since, it's in the fabric of Celtic now. So it's, it's part of our history. It will be there forevermore. But on that day, in the very first huddle was... Pat Bonner, Lee Martin, Tosh McKinley, Malky Mackay, Tony Mowbray, Peter Grant, Brian McLaughlin, Rudy Vata, Pierre Van Hoydonk, Andy Walker, and John Collins. The manager was Tommy Burns. So, yeah, that's where the huddle came from. Okay, yeah. Um, that's, uh, yeah, you're right. It's something that's stuck with us ever since, and certainly the club. Love to use it as a marketing ploy. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, it's. I mean, you look at you look at it when the fans do the huddle. It's mm. great. You stand in the stadium, you turn your back, and the whole stadium is bouncing up and down. Yeah. It's amazing. You know what I mean? And many a many a huddle has been carried out outside uh, Scruffy Murphy's down there in Sydney after uh, yeah. <laughs> after uh, after giving the Rangers a good doing. And um, so yeah, so it's still done to this day, and it's and it's excellent. So thanks, thanks for that, Willie. Um, so the last the last one that we had on the list, I'll probably have to do a bit of a potted version of this due to the, the time. We're just we're running out of time. Was uh, what was the jungle and why was it named as such? Well, the jungle was a, a terracing shed which ran along the north side of the, the, the Celtic Park pitch, um, which held about ten thousand people. Um, it's a bit debatable as to why it was called the jungle. The most likely explanation was it was full of the sort of hardcore of the Celtic fans who, you know, back in the 70s and 80s, it, it was quite badly behaved. There was quite a lot of trouble in there. So it, it was maybe referred to as a jungle from then. The only 
argument to that, I can, I, I've, I've been able to find is that it was named the jungle by returning servicemen uh, who had fought in the Far East in the Second World War uh, in the Asian jungles and, and they, they christened the place the jungle when they came back. But, you know, there, there's nothing, there's no proof, there's no citations for that. So um, you, you can make up your own mind. But certainly it was an iconic part of the ground. Uh, and all, a lot of players said they used to love playing in front of the jungle. I was in the jungle many times myself uh, during the, the 1980s. Some notable games I watched in there were uh, we beat Sporting Lisbon 5-0. Um, the one, the infamous game against Rapid Vienna, where uh, the, uh, the the Rapid Vienna player got hit by a bottle, um, or didn't get hit by a bottle, but a bottle was thrown from the crowd, and the guy kid pretended he's got hit by the bottle. And we won the game, won the tie, but UEFA ordered the tie to be replayed uh, down at Old Trafford, which it was, and we lost that one. So um, that was that was quite a notable game from there. I also remember watching the Nottingham Forest in the UEFA Cup uh, in there, and it was absolutely jam-packed. Uh, um, I remember leaving school and going straight up there for the gates opening and just watching the atmosphere build from there. Uh, and it was certainly a, a, an occasion and a half. And I remember the, the, the centenary season um, and I watched all that from in the jungle. So it sort of met its end due to the due to the, the tail report, which followed the Hillsborough disaster, uh, when the board, the Celtic board and their wisdom decided to put seats down on the jungle. Um, and so, sort of, you know, sums up the sort of pathetic nature of their stewardship was that Rather than have Rangers uh, fans, the last ones to stand in the jungle, because they were in the Scottish Cup final that year, um, and it was the year was, I've got it noted down here, 1993. Um, rather than have the Rangers fans being the last ones to stand in there, they had a blow away the Blues party a week after the, the Cup final, where a team of Celtic legends played a team of Man United legends. Um, and I remember Jimmy Johnson scoring a goal in that game. So, by a, a poor end uh, for a very iconic part of the ground uh, and ultimately it got bulldozed when, the, when Fergus came along and built the new stadium so that, that that's my memories of the jungle um, looking back at it you know fairly iconic great times in there great fun really busy definitely a safety risk and just a, a miracle that no one was ever hurt or, or even killed uh, and my one prevailing memory of the jungle was the smell and to be quite frank, it was the smell of piss. That was all you could smell. And I'll just let you draw your own conclusions as to where it was coming from. But, you know, it was probably a pretty horrible thing at the time, but at the time it was great fun. So that, that's my memories of the jungle. Uh, uh, did any of you guys get a chance to, to go in the jungle? Well, I live in Borneo, so I am still in the jungle. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't, uh, I remember the jungle uh, and it looked like fun, but I was far too young. So I think the seats went in when I was about nine. So, but the seats were only in for a season, two seasons, one season. Mm, yeah, that's right. Yeah. But yeah, it, it was like, it was like an absolute rabble in there. It did look like fun. I was far too young to enjoy it. I wish I could go in there when I was 19 or 20. I would have had a good laugh. But, uh, but also, it's funny you mentioned it, it, it could hold 10,000. Do you remember back in the night? Like I, I remember back in the nineties as well. That like, they used to ten minutes ago, they used to tell you the attendance, and it'd be like oh, fifteen thousand, and everyone used to start laughing. So I think yeah. there was always, even though there was supposed to be ten thousand in there, there might have been more. Uh, 
But yeah, tennising was good fun back then. I, uh, a little bit later, I remember going to uh, Dens Park, going to East End Park and stuff like that, and they still had the tennising. It was good fun. But obviously, with I think it was that, that report came in after Hillsborough, and obviously everything that went on there, so they had to kind of put legislations on football stadiums. So I think that was the aftermath of that. But yeah, it was fun at the time. But yeah, safe standards is the way to go now. Yeah, that's right. Well, we were talking about the centenary season earlier, and I remember the, the game where we clinched the league was a home game against Dundee, um, and we won 3 0. And that day, the official attendance was given as 67,000, which was the, the capacity of the ground. But I, there was at least another 20,000 in that day. And there was people standing all around the, all around the, the track, um, just spilling out from the ground. It was, it was just so, so much more than that. But they only declared the attendance to the, to the game. So, yeah, it was, it was great fun at the time. But, you know, as, 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 as with everything, times change uh, and we moved on now. And I don't think, I don't think I would enjoy it as much if we were back there today, put it that way. Um, so, yeah, so we'll move on from that. Uh, and we've, we've run out of time. Um, so I'll go around and grab any last thoughts from you, Gav. Any any final things to send us on our way this week? Oh, I don't, again, I don't have any final thoughts prepared, but one thing I was going to mention earlier, maybe you can tell me if this is true. Mikey Johnson is one trophy short of the same number as Paul McStay. Can that be true? Possibly. Yeah, I wouldn't argue Sounds with that. Fantastic. Yeah. So what that shows you is the element of luck as to the era that you come into as a professional footballer. We talked earlier slightly about imagine Paul McStay being around when Ange arrived. And you can only dream of the kind of glory that he would have had under stewardship like Ange and people like we've had recently. Yeah, so, so talking about trophy holes, my, my favourite one now is um, the fact that the Celtic Japanese interpreter now has more trophy, now has more medals than James Tavernier. So that's right. that's my favourite one for the for the week. Um, so, Willie, what about you? Any final thoughts? Nah, just going to give a shout out to my mate Stevie James who lives just around the corner from me. Well, a few k's away, like, but I promise I'm gonna give him a shout out, like, so all right, Stevie, how are you doing? Excellent, mate. And Mark, yourself, hey, uh, my, my final thoughts. Well, I won't, I won't be on for the next two pods, uh, obviously working next week, but the week after that, I'm actually driving a, an old ship box from Rockhampton to Hobart, uh, down the, down the middle of Queensland. Uh, it's called the Shipbox Rally. And it's all money for cancer councils. So we've got a car, a Ford Falcon, worth less than fifteen hundred, and we're going to try and get it there. <laughs> but that'll be that'll be fun. So looking for really, mm-hmm. really, really looking forward to that. Got the car ready today. It's good to go. It's got uh, safety down under stickers on it. So if there's anyone that's watching that's knows anyone that's going on it, get in touch and look out for us, and uh, we'll we'll grab a beer. Yeah, well done, mate. Great cause. That's excellent work, and I, and I hope it. I hope it goes well for you, and you get plenty of money for that. It's a fantastic cause. Um, so for me, I'll, I'll just l- let you know that uh, the pod will be back tomorrow night with the usual Wednesday, Wednesday show, which will be looking ahead to the to the Hearts game, which is Thursday morning our time. Um, and also, don't forget to check out the Weekend Review podcast that was recorded yesterday, with a, a far more in depth review of the St Mirren game. And um, 
And thanks very much for all your comments there. We didn't get around to reading them all, but we appreciate everything and thanks for tuning in. And um, we'll see you all next week and, and hail, hail. Hail, hail. Hail, hail. Hail, hail.